This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to episode 331 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry I'm a couple of days late this week. Following a rare victory for the mighty Leeds United, I had a few issues with towels in Rochdale during the celebrations. You know how it is, right? We've all been there. This week, I'm covering a story that will be known to many of you. The murder of Sally Ann Bowman. Someone on Instagram asked why I'm covering this story when I usually cover much lesser known cases. And it's a simple answer. I just can't recall, I don't think, a case in my lifetime which has upset me more than this one. And like all the stories on this podcast, I think the story should continually be told. Today's episode is a little longer than normal, but I wanted to keep it to one episode rather than split it into two. This episode is brought to you from Gusto. And after they sent me an intro pack, I am loving their food. I've gone back for more and I know that you will too. Even as a vegan, there are so many options. And most importantly, the food is delicious. Gusto gives you everything you need to create incredible home-cooked meals, including exact portions of fresh ingredients, which means that nothing is wasted. It also means you don't have to waste time shopping. I always forget something, don't you? This means cooking amazing tasty food can easily become a normal part of your busy life. Gusto make everything easy and even deliver everything to your door on any day that suits you. And the recipe cards are super easy to follow. But most of all, the food from Gusto is always fresh using high quality ingredients. And with over 250 to choose from, there are loads that you're going to love. So why not give it a try today, especially when our friends at Gusto are offering a fantastic deal for listeners to this podcast. Just head to gusto.co.uk and use the code TRUECRIME for 60% off your first box and 25% off all boxes for two months. So let's quickly set the scene for today's story with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Pussycat Dolls featuring Buster Rhymes with Don'tcha. In the US, it was Gold Digger in the top spot from Kanye West featuring Jamie Foxx. And top of the Australian music charts was James Blunt with Back to Bedlam. Now, if only his music was as good as his chat on Twitter. If you don't follow him, do so. He is so self-depreciating and really amusing. He's almost as funny as me. In the news this month, the horrendous fallout from Hurricane Katrina continued as the bodies of more than 40 patients were discovered in a flooded hospital in New Orleans. There was unbearable excitement as Fernando Alonso won his first formless news title. I couldn't sleep for a week, could you? The Parliament of Catalonia passed with 120 plus votes and 15 against the project of new Catalan Statute of Autonomy proclaiming in its Article 1 that Catalonia is a nation. As we know, the Spanish authorities disagreed. 
So did you get the month and year? It was September 2005. Now don't tell me you were just one out again. Today's story comes from Croydon, a large town in South London, around 10 miles from the centre. Croydon is probably best known recently for its wildly incompetent local council, which after going bust is in special measures. It makes my local council, Perth and Kim Ross, look almost competent. Famous people who grew up in Croydon here include a real mix such as this trio, Captain Sensible from The Damned, D.H. Lawrence and Stormzy. At 4.20am, Neighbours in the suburbs of Croydon heard what sounded like screams, but they didn't investigate further. Like many of us would have done, they just assumed it was a fox or cats fighting and went back to sleep. A couple of hours later, at 6.30am, one of the neighbours did head out to investigate what the noise had been, saying, I put on my dressing gown and slippers and went across the road to investigate a pair of white legs that she'd seen near a skip. I walked around the left side of the skip. I just knew. I just felt I knew what I would see. It was not going to be a model or a mannequin. I just related it to the screams. I knelt just as a natural thing and said, Oh, poor darling. The neighbour had found the bloody and lifeless body of 18-year-old Sally Ann Bowman. Sally Ann was born in 1987, the youngest of four daughters, Linda and Paul. She loved to sing and perform and attended the Brit School for Performing Arts and Technology in Croydon, which is where Adele and Amy Winehouse spent some time. She worked part-time as a hairdresser, and with her personality, good looks and height, she was six foot tall, she had real hopes of becoming a top model. In January 2005, she was signed up by local talent firm Pulse Model Management. And in April 2005, she took part in Swatch Alternative Fashion Week. She said this of the experience. I was so nervous all week, particularly when all the models were lined up and the designers chose who they wanted to model their clothes. Luckily, I was picked by loads of designers, which gave me more confidence. Life was great for Sally Ann, and when we joined the story in September 2005, like many other 18-year-olds, she was enjoying her teen years. On Saturday the 24th of September, she and her sister Sally and some friends were planning a night out, and rather than travelling to central London, they went to Lloyd's Bar on Croydon High Street. Her sister picked her up at 6.05pm, and as she left her mum's flat, she waved goodbye and thanked her for letting her stay, saying a final, love you mum. Her mum, of course, could never have guessed that it was the last time she would see her precious daughter. It was a good night, but it had been a long week, and by 1am, Sally Ann was ready to head off, and waited for a taxi to take her to the house for a friend. Once there, she called her on-off boyfriend, 22-year-old plasterer, Lewis Sproston who'd also been out that night with his mates at a nightclub in nearby Kingston. They had been texting on and off throughout the night, and she then texted him and then called him to pick her up, making up a story that this was because her sister had been arrested for fighting. Lewis thought this was a bit out of order, calling him at this time when he was out with his pals, but he cared deeply for Sally Ann, 
and he didn't want to leave her with no way home, so he drove over to pick her up, getting there at about 2.20am. Like many people of this age, the relationship had many ups and downs, with silly arguments over not very much. Lewis would later say, The arguments were just silly things, everyday silliness. I was jealous, and she was more trusting than me. So Lewis picked her up and they began driving back to her house, but they began arguing about why their relationship had ended. Lewis said, I thought she'd been with boys that night, and she thought I'd been with girls. It was just jealousy. There may have been raised voices, but not shouting. Nobody outside the car would have heard it. We then made it up, hugging and kissing, but Sally Ann didn't want me to leave when we started to argue. In all, it was for about one and a half to two hours from the time we arrived there. I leaned across her to open the passenger door. I went to get into the car again, but she didn't want me to, and she grabbed my t-shirt, ripping my chain from my neck. After a couple of minutes, I got back into the car and locked the doors. Sally Ann picked up her handbag and I saw her walking away through the rear view mirror. The last thing I saw of Sally Ann was her entering her front garden. She was looking at me for the first couple of seconds as she started to walk towards the garden. And that was the last time anyone, except her killer, saw Sally Ann Bowman alive. Once Sally Ann's body had been discovered, the police were quickly called and the home and road were cordoned off so the forensic experts could get to work, finding any clues that could prove so vital. The autopsy happened quickly. In total, she'd suffered seven stab wounds to her neck and her abdomen, two of which were major wounds that had passed through her stomach and exited out of her back. And there was another fatal wound that had pierced her spine and voice box, almost completely severing the artery in her throat. This would have led to her death within 20 or 30 seconds due to the severe blood loss involved. But the results were a surprise to detectives because as well as the seven stab wounds, they also found bite marks on her cheek, neck and chest. Sally Ann had also been raped, presumably by the man who had killed her. The community was in shock at the sheer horror of the rape and murder of a young woman with so much to live for, but also because it had happened so close to her home, just feet away from her front door. Many people from the local community came to the scene of the crime and just stood silently, laying flowers and looking in disbelief at the residential spot which was so calm where such a terrible thing had happened. It just made no sense that such horror could have taken place on just such a normal, ordinary residential road. Unfortunately for detectives, there was no early breakthrough in their investigation. There was no CCTV covering the scene and no witnesses. But they had one piece of evidence on their side. The killer had left his DNA. Distressingly, the killer had tried to cover up their DNA by using nearby cement and putting this into Sally Ann to try and cover this track. A search of Sally Ann's mobile phone records quickly identified a prime suspect, her boyfriend, Lewis Broston, who also happened to be the last person to see her alive. 
Their mobile phone records revealed that he'd threatened to spit in her face if she'd been with another man on the night of her murder. Clearly jealous. Would this have led to murder if she had told him that she'd been seeing another person? The next day, detectives arrested him as he made his way to McDonald's with some of his friends. As he was bundled into the police car, he asked, Is this about the row of my girlfriend last night? Lewis continued to stick to his story and deny any role in the murder of Sally Ann over four days of questioning. But then the results came back from the lab, revealing that the DNA found on Sally Ann did not belong to Lewis. There was a chance, a very slim chance, that he'd had sex with Sally Ann and then another man had killed her afterwards. But this was so unlikely. Detectives didn't think Lewis was the man they were looking for, and he was released. Detectives believed that the murder was a random attack, and that the same man was responsible for an assault on a 36-year-old woman about an hour before Sally Ann's murder. A man had attacked a woman motorist just metres from where Sally Ann was killed. The motorist had pulled over and got out of the car to use her mobile phone due to a poor signal. A man approached her and the woman saw he was holding a knife and offered him her handbag as she assumed she was being robbed. Taking it and her mobile phone, the attacker then muttered sorry before beating her over the head of a blunt instrument. Luckily, a taxi driver came to her aid, probably saving her life and certainly saving her from being seriously sexually assaulted. After the victim had received first aid, she realised to her horror that the attacker had also bitten her during the assault. Now surely the knife and the biting means that this had to be the same man who later attacked Sally Ann. Detectives believed it was, and that it was likely that the attacker, after the foiled attempt on this woman, had run to a safe place where he saw Sally Ann and her boyfriend Lewis arguing. He then lay in wait, knowing that the woman in the passenger seat would soon be getting out of the car and then attacking Sally Ann just seconds after Lewis had pulled away. Once he had stabbed Sally Ann, they believed that the man waited in the bushes for any lights to come on for any neighbours to investigate. When they didn't, he went back to her body and raped her as she was dead or lay dying, savagely biting her. He then left with some trophies from the scene, some of her clothes, handbag and her mobile phone. Detectives believed they were looking for a local man. But despite three Crime Watch appeals, the release of two EFITs, a £40,000 reward and numerous other appeals, nobody was charged. Then in February 2006, they asked 4,000 men in the local area to take part in a DNA screening procedure which would help eliminate them from their inquiries. But nothing. Do you recall the World Cup, the Football World Cup in Germany in 2006? It was the one where David Beckham was the most high-profile footballer there and the WAG became a thing. It was also yet another tournament where England underperformed, including a rather dull game against Trinidad and Tobago. But as that game was being played in a pub in Crawley that night, there was a bit of a fight after the football finished and the police were called. One man, 35-year-old chef Mark Dixie, was arrested. A man spilt his beer, so he took him outside and was pushing him around in front of two police officers. Dixie was arrested for this minor assault 
and was made to give a saliva sample so detectives could match his DNA, which had been standard practice since 2004. It was a routine arrest, except for one thing that this man Dixie, he cried while being questioned and swabbed. And the police officers couldn't understand why it was, after all, a minor, a minor crime. But the reason for this somewhat extreme reaction became apparent 12 days later, when the police in Sussex were called by the forensics lab to say that the DNA of this man who'd been brawling in a pub was a near-perfect match for the semen found on Sally Ann Bowman. There was more than a one in a billion chance that it belonged to anybody else. So detectives headed to the pub where he worked as a chef in Hawley, Sussex, as he was taking a cigarette break and arrested him on suspicion of murder. Dixie was cool and calm and didn't put up the fuss that detectives expected. He didn't seem bothered at all as he was taken away. Now Dixie must have known that the arrest was coming. Now this was a man who we will discover later had lived all over the world. So why did he not flee before detectives came knocking on his door? At the police station, Dixie showed the same demeanour as when he was arrested. Cold and lacking any emotion. When he was asked first of all about the crime, he said, I must have been mental to have done something like that, huh? But otherwise, he just said no comments or questions put to him. But when detectives searched a barn, near the Six Bells pub where he stored some of his belongings. They found in a suitcase a digital camera. On this camera there was a video clip recorded in March of that year which showed a man which they believed was Dixie masturbating over a photograph of Sally Ann Bowman appearing on the front page of the Daily Mail. It was sickening, it was shocking. So just who was this man, Mark Dixie? Born in September 1970 in Streatham, South London, his parents separated when he was just eight months old and his mum remarried when he was eight. He started using cannabis when he was 14 and at 16 he first came to the attention of the local police following an attack in nearby Stockwell. And this was a pattern repeated by Dixie throughout his criminal career, attacking locally in areas in which he was familiar. In the first assault, he held a knife to a woman's throat as he groped her breasts and demanded she gave him money. For this, he was given six months in a young offender's institution. Then at just 17, he became a dad, but his son sadly was stillborn. Soon after this, his behaviour escalated as he attempted to rape a Jehovah's Witness after violently attacking her. From here, for the next seven years, the pattern of his offending was wearily predictable. Indecent assault, indecent exposure, robbery and assault. But then there was a gap in his UK offending as he moved to Australia in 1993 with his girlfriend, with whom he had two sons, and where he stayed until 1999. There is no record of Dixie being involved in any crime in Australia until 1998, which is pretty hard to believe. But in 1998 he struck when he broke into the home of a Thai student living in Perth. The similarities to the murder of Sally Ann are shocking as he stabbed her eight times before raping her as he believed that she was dying. Although not caught at the time, with the DNA from the attack on Sally Ann, it could be shown definitively that this poor young woman 
was in fact attacked by Mark Dixie. Then soon afterwards, Dixie was caught indecently exposing himself to a jogger and asked her for sex. When he was caught for this, he was deported from Australia. Unfortunately, this information was not passed to the British police. From here, Dixie went to Spain for a bit, more of this later, and then he returned to Croydon with his girlfriend Stacy and their baby son. But Dixie was drinking lots and taking a lot of drugs, and his behaviour was erratic and aggressive, with lots of arguing between the couple and Dixie starting to bite Stacy on the neck during rough sex after he'd been taking drugs. This all got too much for Stacy, who left him on the 1st of September 2005, on the night before the murder, which, as we know, took place in the early hours of the next day, Dixie had been staying with a friend of his, very close to the murder scene in Croydon. He and this friend Victoria had been away camping together, and then along with other friends, they went out for his birthday to the Windsor Castle pub, which is now the Toby Carvery in South Croydon. Victoria said that he was as normal the life and soul of the party, He's a normal guy, people say. They said he's very, very ordinary and straightforward. But she said that changed at one point in the night when he took a call. She said, there was a point that his mood changed. He took a phone call and he was quite withdrawn after that. I believe it was from Stacy. He was expecting her to say happy birthday, but instead she asked him to babysit. The group stayed out drinking late before returning to Victoria's flat for more booze then head into bed at about 2.30 in the morning. When Victoria woke up and headed downstairs about 10.30 the next morning, she found Dixie on the sofa, awake and in good spirits. The two went for breakfast together, but ended up having a pint of lager as hair of the dog, as they both drunk so much the night before. Victoria later said there was absolutely no indication in Dixie's behaviour that he'd committed such a dreadful crime. Are you surprised by this? I am. We often hear, don't we, on this podcast after committing murder, the killers are very changed by this experience. But not Dixie, it seems. Victoria did tell detectives about a very strange event about two weeks later when she was discussing Sally Ann's murder with Dixie and a friend at the time when all the local men were being asked to provide DNA samples. The friend suggested that Dixie should provide a sample and he didn't respond well at all. Victoria said, he got quite angry. He said, why should I? I was in the flat all night. Are you calling me a fucking murderer? Detectives felt they had a very strong case and 37-year-old Mark Dixie was charged with the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. As you can imagine, the trial was a traumatic affair. Dixie pleaded not guilty to the murder and detectives were astonished to hear his line of defence. This was that he'd seen Sally Ann dead and had taken this opportunity to have sex with her body but he didn't kill her. He said it was only when he bit her cheek and there was no response that he realised that she was in fact dead. The jury didn't take long, just three hours before they returned with a unanimous verdict of guilty And for this crime, Dixie was told he'd have to serve a minimum of 34 years in prison. A large sentence for a single murder, reflecting the horrifying circumstances of this crime. For Sally Ann's family and friends, there was a sense of relief and justice finally being done. 
as they cheered as the verdict was delivered by the jury foreman. The judge told Dixie his conduct was unspeakable. What you did that night was so awful and repulsive that I do not propose to repeat it, he said. Your consequent conduct shows you had not the slightest remorse for what you had done. Dixie shook his head before being taken down to the cells. Sally Ann's mum, Linda, tried to console her daughters, while her boyfriend, Louis Sproston, wept with friends. After the trial, Sally Ann's dad, Paul, said, Sally Ann, you may have been taken from us, but rest assured you will forever be missed and never forgotten. Her mum, Linda, added, My heart will never mend, not even over time. I cannot understand why my baby girl was taken from me in such a brutal and depraved way. I cannot understand why he killed her. Detective Superintendent Cundy, the man who led the case against Dixie, when asked why he didn't plead guilty when the evidence against him was so strong, said he believed that it was because he wanted to enjoy reliving the attack in court. Detectives didn't think for one moment they'd uncovered all the crimes of Mark Dixie. And after the trial, more work was done with the Spanish police to look into crimes there for which Dixie was a suspect. If you recall, Dixie moved to Spain in 2002 where he was suspected of more attacks. In particular, three rapes which took place within two hours of each other in the early hours of 10th of August 2003 when three women were raped as Dixie went on a cocaine fueled rampage. One woman was punched, thrown to the floor and raped in a horrifying 15-minute attack which left her needing to spend four days in hospital and then with longer-term severe psychological problems. Just moments later, a second woman was punched in the head. She too was pushed to the floor and sexually assaulted before Dixie fled with her phone and £100 in cash. And shortly afterwards, the third victim was attacked a few hundred yards away. She was punched in the head, thrown to the floor, sexually assaulted. A Dutchman, Romano van der Dussen, who looked remarkably like Dixie, was sentenced to 15 years for these crimes. And it was only eight months after Dixie's conviction for the murder of Sally Ann that Dixie admitted to one of these attacks, but could not even recall, he said, if he was guilty of the others, as he was so out of it at the time. A saliva sample was taken and poor Romano was released after spending 12 years in prison for crimes he didn't commit. He was convicted on eyewitness accounts only, which as you know, always shaky when such awful crimes take place and the DNA evidence wasn't matched to him. The attacks took place in a popular tourist resort and if we were cynical, we could suggest that the authorities seemed more interested to get a conviction for tourism purposes rather than ensure they got the right person. We can, of course, only guess the effect that this time in prison had on Romano. And in January 2015, Dixie wrote to police saying he wanted to tell the truth about what happened to Sally Ann when he finally confessed to killing her in a frenzied attack. He said he had not raped or murdered anybody else before, but when the investigating officer said, that's not entirely true, I know something you did in 1987. Dixie then admitted two more crimes. One when he was just 16 when he tied up a woman in her car and sexually assaulted her before setting fire to the vehicle. 
The victim was lucky to be able to make her escape, but she was terrified when she then received two calls from Dixie in the coming days. In a victim's statement, she said, I didn't seek counselling. I had survived. I was in one piece and just wanted to get on with life. Then there was another attack in 2002 when Dixie attacked another woman with a chef's steel. You might know that this is the equipment used to sharpen kitchen knives. He told her, I'm going to kill you, before he also began to sexually assault her. Luckily, he was disturbed when another man heard her screams. And once again, Dixie took her mobile and called her ex-boyfriend, telling him, I've battered her, I've battered her, I've left her by the railway. Let's go back to Sally Ann's family. Her mum, Linda, was a strong supporter of Romano's fight for justice in Spain. She said, an innocent man has spent 11 years of a 16-year sentence in prison for a crime he did not do. I feel very strongly that if the Spanish authorities had done their job properly, my Sally Ann would be alive. And Sally's family and friends, as if they'd not suffered enough, faced more heartbreaking actions. Her remains had to be exhumed after people repeatedly desecrated her grave. Her mum, Linda, told the Daily Mirror how Sally Ann's burial place attracted absolute fruit loops as the grave was targeted four times in six months. We used to have funny men hanging around over there and myself and her dad had to go through the Ministry of Justice to have it exhumed. Other incidents involved dirt and dead flowers being spread across the grave, the trauma of which brought memories of her daughter's death flooding back. Presumably this was sick friends of Dixie, but whoever it was showing such a lack of respect for Sally Ann and her family is just awful to hear. Surely anyone would realise that this family had been through quite enough. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a terrible crime, isn't it? And most of us immediately recognise Sally Ann from pictures we've seen so often. It's certainly one of the few cases in my life that's had a massive impact on me. Unfortunately, we have to turn quickly to Dixie, a man who offended all his life from 16 up until when he was finally caged. I've no interest in him at all and frankly I hope he's never released. But there are two things we should tie up. Firstly, he has three children. They are now adults. I wonder if they know he is their blood father. Presumably so. I wonder how they feel about the actions of their dad. And secondly, let's just go back to the emotion Dixie showed when he was arrested during his arrest for the pub fight. But he didn't choose to flee the country. Now, for someone who lived in Spain, Australia and Amsterdam, I find that strange. But I think it's probably best explained by Detective Superintendent Cundy, who said, He got away with stuff for so long around the world and he thought, I'm invincible. So maybe that's it. But enough about him. Our thoughts absolutely lie with the family and friends of Sally Ann, her ex-boyfriend Lewis, the last person except Dixie to see her alive and the neighbours who heard the screams as Sally Ann lay dying. And no doubt it has shaped their lives. But as they look at the pictures of Sally Ann and think of their memories, and then feel angry at how she was taken in her prime with so much to look forward to, I hope all these people are able to see there is nothing they could have done. A predator like Dixie and others like him that we've heard about unfortunately 
too often on this podcast, can't be stopped. He would always be looking for an opportunity and just couldn't care less how this devastates so many lives for generations. But once again, it's just so terribly unfair that another person with so much to live for and so much love to give was taken when just living her normal life. Let's finish with some very moving words from Sally Ann's mum, Linda. She later said this about her much-loved daughter. Music was her love. She was always singing. I can still hear it ringing around the house. Her favourite song was My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. The day we took her to the grave, I left the house last, so it could just be me and her in the car one last time. I put a seatbelt around the urn so I could keep her safe until the end and I put on a CD of her singing My Heart Will Go On. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please join almost 90,000 of us on the Facebook group where all we do is talk UK True Crime every day of the year. Come and join us. And to support the show, why not join our community on Patreon? You will access bonus episodes. There's over 50 exclusive content, competitions, and a ton of other bits and pieces. All for as little as £1 a month, and you can cancel at any time, although of course you won't want to. A huge thank you to the new members of this community. That is Kaz Fleet, Lucy Selick, and Stephen Hargreaves. Thank you all so much for your support. Okay, so that's all for another week from the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. So until we speak on Tuesday, (laughs) and it will be Tuesday next week, life won't get in the way this time, please do take it easy. And despite the others, despite the others, please stay classy. Cheerio for now. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.